Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Acts chapter 2. We have just finished having the Holy Spirit fall on the gathered apostles, probably 120. Some people say the 12 apostles, but it was probably 120 disciples. And it was probably in the temple courts, not in the upper room. At least that's controversial too, but that's the way I'm interpreting this passage. We're going to we're going to cover verses 14 to verses 24. This is Peter's Pentecostal sermon. He stands up after the crowd looks at those 120 disciples drunk as was as if with new wine, staggering all over the place, speaking in tongues, proclaiming the excellent things of God. And so Peter stands up to give his famous so-called Pentecostal sermon, verse 14. But Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Men of Judah and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. Well, Peter stood up because he was the spokesman, he was the leader. He stood up with the eleven. Notice that John calls them the eleven because Judas has been scotched. However, they have replaced the eleven with Matthias, but that was just a name referring to the to the whole group of apostles. Sometimes they're called the eleven, sometimes the twelve. That doesn't, it's just a title for the group. It's not meant to be taken literally that they were eleven literal apostles because they have Matthias there too. So Peter stands up, he raises his voice because he's got to preach, he's got to kind of project his voice, and he had to proclaim to them, men of Judah and all you residents of Jerusalem. Now residents could either mean the proselytes coming into the city for the Passover festival, or it could mean the people who live there year-round. The word is ambiguous. I did look up, I don't know why I was so curious about this, but I looked up and found about 11 translations in which the English translation said it was permanent residents, not proselytes. But it doesn't matter. The point is, is he's preaching to all of them, and he says, these people are not drunk as you suppose. Now this is, a, of course, a defense. He is trying to defend the disciples against the sneering people who sneered at them and said, these people are just drink, drinking. This is not something from God. This is people that, are, that have been carousing too much. Peter could have said, oh, yeah, well, if they were just drinking, how do you think that wine gives them the ability to speak in languages that they never learned? Can you explain that, sneers? But he doesn't take that tack. Instead, he points out that it's only 9 o'clock in the morning, and on a festival day such as Pentecost, no Jew would ever start eating till about 10 o'clock. This is the NIV Study Bible, so they're not going to start eating, they're not going to start drinking either. 9 o'clock was the hour of prayer, and previous to the hour of prayer, Jews scarcely ever ate or drank, as Adam Clark said. Even the most intemperate Jews were not known to transgress this, this habit of not eating before or drinking before 9 o'clock. So that was a very good argument. He said, look, these guys are Jews. They're not going to get drunk. Nobody's even eating anything by 9 o'clock or drunk anything by 9 o'clock in the morning, and now you're saying they're drunk. That's absurd. Now, let's give an outline of Peter's Pentecostal sermon. There are three parts to it. This is courtesy of the NIV Study Bible. The first part is the explanation of events, which we just started here to explain why these people are staggering around. That goes from verses 14 through 21. And then the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached from 22 to 36. That includes Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his exaltation, his, his ascension. And then the last part of the sermon, which is in verses 37 through 40 in Acts 2, we have Peter's exhortation to repentance and to baptism. You guys need to repent. You need to be baptized. So right now we're in the section of the sermon where Peter explains what's going on. 
We go to verse 16. Peter continues. On the contrary, in other words, contrary to the, to the accusation that they're drunk. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Now, Peter here is going to quote Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. The quote is very, very similar, almost exactly. So to save time, I'm not going to read Joel's quote. There is one place that he changes one word, but it's basically the same. So we drop down to verses, verses 17 and 18, and Peter quotes Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days, and they will prophesy. Now this is the famous prophecy of Joel fulfilled at Pentecost. Now, the fact that Joel says that the Spirit will be poured out on sons and daughters, that makes me think that it was the 120, not just the 12 apostles, upon whom the Spirit was poured out. Because those 120 included Mary, the mother of Jesus, plus the women that had accompanied Jesus on his apostolic endeavors. And so, therefore, that would make Joel's prophecy more apropos. Now, of course, you could argue, as I argued in a previous audio, that this is talking about that Joel's prophecy is not really fulfilled until later when the Spirit fell on all the crowd that was there. And a lot of people got filled with the Spirit and started <clears throat> prophesying and so forth that it could have been fulfilled later. So that's not a completely dispositive argument. But it does sound like since since Peter is talking about an event that just happened, he's trying to explain it. And then he says, see there, Joel said, your daughters will prophesy, which means that it was probably the women in the 120 that were, were prophesying. At least that's my opinion. I think that's the way you should interpret that. Now, daughter's prophesying happened in the future also. As I just mentioned, here's an example in Acts 21, verse 9. This man, Agabus, had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Notice that Joel says that there will be no distinction in gender when the Spirit comes. Usually the earlier prophets were male prophets. But here we've got female slaves that Joel says the Holy Spirit's going to come on. There's no distinction in age because there's young men the Holy Spirit will come on. There's no distinction of rank because we're talking about slaves. So basically, there's no gender or social distinctions, as Adam Clark says, and the Holy Spirit's going to fall, and it's going to be a wonderful time. Now let's take this phrase, I will, and it will be in the last days. Oh, and everybody hears last days, they think, oh, Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, black helicopters, nuclear bombs, pre-trib tribulation, and all that pre-trib rapture. A great tribulation? No, that's not what last days means. Last days, when a Jew heard that word, it meant referring to the last days of the Jewish order before the Messiah came. And then the after the last days would be the age of the Messiah. So when Peter says, quoting Joel, says it will be in the last days, what he means is, hey guys, your kingdom, your time is over. The Messiah is here. That's all he was saying. Now, if that's hard for you to believe... Let me quote the NIV Study Bible. Here, the phrase last days refers to the last days of the Old Covenant. The Old Jewish Order is done with. The last days of the Old Covenant. Thank you, NIV Study Bible. This is not the last days of the world. The NIV Study Bible goes on to say it's the age of messianic fulfillment, which is exactly what the word means. Here's a quote from John Gill, quoting a Jewish rabbi. R. David Kimchi, a celebrated commentator with the Jews, observes that afterwards is the same as in the last days, and which designed the times of the Messiah. For according to a rule given by the same writer on Isaiah 2.2, wherever the last days are mentioned, the days of the Messiah are intended. Well, there you have a rabbinic author saying last days means days of the Messiah, end of the Old Covenant. 
Here's a, here's a quote from Adam Clark. The time of the Messiah, and so the phrase was understood among the Jews. Last days means the time of the Messiah, not the end of the world with the black helicopters and the nuclear bombs. Jameson Fawcett Brown says last days refers to, quote, the days of the Messiah. I'm stacking citations here, stacking authorities here because of the ingrained mythology that dispensationalists have polluted the minds of Christians with, especially here in America, that last days means the end of the world. No, it does not. Here's some scriptures, and I'm going to read these scriptures to you. Most of them are in the Old, are in the Old Testament, and we can see that none of these scriptures refer unambiguously to the end of the world. Isaiah 2.2, In the last days the mountains of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it. That could refer to all the Gentiles getting saved as they stream to the new Jerusalem, the new Israel, the new Moses, Jesus. Hosea 3.5, Afterward the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come with all to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days, in the Messianic time when Jesus' people come to Jesus. And also, these quotes can also refer to physical, the physical return, which was a type of the antitype of the spiritual return to the Messiah, the physical return of the Jews to Israel after the 586 deportation by Babylon. But the main point is, is that people are going to be coming to the Messiah in the last days, in the days of the Messiah. Micah 4.1, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house, that's Mount Zion, will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. People will stream to it. Again, people are going to come to the Messiah and get saved in the Messianic age. 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, that's like last days, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. That so-called great apostasy did not necessarily happen at the end of the world here. It could refer to the time where the church got real cold there right before AD 70, which can be established from history. Second Timothy 3.1, but know this, difficult times will come in the last days. That does not necessarily mean the end of the world as it is often quoted erroneously saying, see, well, it's going to get terrible here in the last days and church is going to be all beaten down and nobody's going to believe and the devil's going to be winning and the Antichrist is going to be winning and us Christians are going to get our rears beat down, beat in. Pessimillennialism, folks. Bad interpretation. Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, here's a good quote. This is one of my favorite last days quotes because this has to be the end of the Jewish age. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's not at the end of the world. That's at the time when Jesus came. He has spoken to us by his son. His son came not at the end of the world, but at the first advent at AD at 4 BC. God has appointed him heir of all things, made the universe through him. First Peter 1.20, he was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the times for you. Jesus was already, already revealed. When was he revealed? At the end of the times, at the end of the Jewish age, in the last days. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. We know from this that it is the last hour. It is the last hour right now. Why? Because the Jews went down. The Jewish order that killed Jesus and persecuted the prophets from synagogue to synagogue. So, I've overkilled that one too, but again, that's a big myth. It's hard to shake people out of that myth. And besides, and besides the quote from Joel was being quoted by Peter right then, not 2,000 plus years in the future. At the end of the world, he says, it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour up my spirit. Peter is quoting Joel as fulfilling the prophecy then, right there at the day of Pentecost. So that means the day of Pentecost was in the last days. The end of the Jewish order, the beginning of the Messianic age, when Jesus had come. 
Peter, quoting Joel, says that young men will see visions. Let's look at some examples of that that were fulfilled in Scripture. Acts 9.10, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he said. Acts 10.17, while Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision he had seen might mean, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon's house, stood at the gate. That was the vision that got Peter to go from Joppa to Cornelius' house, where he saw all the unclean animals in the sheep. Acts 22:17. after I come back to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple complex, I went into a visionary state. That's the same vision. Peter's relating it to the elders at Jerusalem. Revelation 1:10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, in the spirit. I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. And of course, that was John the Apostle. He had tons of visions as he saw the, the apocalypse of St. John. So Peter continues in Acts 2, verses 19 through 21. He's continuing, continuing to quote Joel. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and remarkable day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will, will be saved. Now, first of all, there is no record in history that the moon turned to blood or that the sun turned dark, that it was an eclipse or something, on that day of Pentecost. It didn't happen. It was not meant to be fulfilled literally. Now, you could make it fulfilled, be fulfilled literally if you say this all happened at the remarkable day of the Lord, the day of the Lord being the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, not the end of the world, but AD 70. All right, so let's look at wonders in the heaven above. I will display wonders in the heaven above. Here's some options. It could be the angels and the star that appeared at the birth of Christ that Joel's referring to. I don't have a problem with that. Could be. Could be the comet that hung over Jerusalem the night before Jerusalem fell in AD 70. Uh, the, this is an opinion that the wonders are referring to the day of the Lord coming, which is the destruction of Jerusalem. That's a John Gill's idea here. Gill also says it could refer to the comet. Well, I just said that. The comet that hung over Jerusalem before 80, uh, Jerusalem fell, that's cited in Josephus. Also, Josephus cites forms of armies in heaven engaged together the night before Jerusalem fell. I've often wondered what Josephus meant by that. I wonder if it was just a bunch of clouds in the sky with the sun going through and they were shaped like armies fighting each other. I don't know exactly what he meant, but that would, could be a sign referring to 8070, the destruction Adam Clark says this, quote, It is likely that both the prophet and the apostle, Joel and Peter, refer to the calamities that fell upon the Jews at the destruction of Jerusalem and the fearful signs and portents that preceded these calamities. I think he's right. So the wonders could be the wonders that happened in AD 70. The signs could be miracles done by Christ or miracles done by the apostles and the other disciples of Christ. Or it could be the signs that were seen at the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. That would keep it a little bit more consistent, although I don't think that's necessary. You know, there were signs on the earth, signs on the land below because of what Jesus did. But also in AD 70, here's what Josephus reports. There was a flame seen in the temple. The doors of the temple opened by themselves. That could have been an earthquake or something, busting the, the lintel loose and making the door swing open. A voice was heard in the temple saying, let's go, let us go. In other words, the Holy Spirit leaving the temple, maybe. There was an idiot that traveled Jerusalem for years saying, Woe to the city, woe to the city. He finally got killed. I think a stone landed on his head or something during the, the, the Jewish war, the siege. But at any rate, there were all these weird stuff that was going on, and Josephus records them. And it's really hard for 20th century readers to exactly know what was going on. But 
I don't have any problem with believing that's exactly what happened. Now, Joel, Peter, quoting Joel, says that blood and fire and cloud of smoke is going to come at the day of the Lord. Well, now that's easy to see be fulfilled in eighty seventy. The blood, the blood of all the Jerusalemites that were killed, or all the Israelites that were killed during the Jewish war, and particularly the blood of the Jerusalemites who were killed when the city fell in eighty seventy. Fire, that could refer to the fire that ate up Jerusalem. Remember that parable? I'm going to come down and burn down your city, the master said. Cloud of smoke, that could refer to Jerusalem going up and into uh, burning up into smoke. And the phrase, the sun will be turned to darkness, could refer to the fact that the sun's not throwing, shining through that smoke and the moon turning to blood because the moon, when it's seen behind a veil of smoke, will turn red. That could be. Or it just could be, that could be just typical decreation rhetoric, which how that works is when you hear prophetic language like this, where the figs fall, stars fall to the earth like figs shaken from a tree, the sun turning to darkness, the moon turning to blood. It's just the prophetic way of saying there's going to be regime change for kingdoms which are opposed to God, and God's going to kick their fannies. That's basically what decreation rhetoric does. My favorite, there's a lot of these in the Old Testament, and they're not meant to be interpreted literally. You can take all these Old Testament examples of this decreation rhetoric, and never can you find one that lines up with a known eclipse. And they've got astronomical records that go back forever because of the dear old Babylonians keeping their star charts. So we know when the eclipses happened, and they never happened during these Old Testament prophecies of stars falling from the sky and so forth. Here's my favorite example, Isaiah 13, 10 through 11, referring to Babylon. Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. Stars go dark. The sun will be dark when it rises. Mm, how can you have a sun dark when it rises? I remember when I was in my dispensational under the dispensationalist influence we have to take everything literally absolutely literally i remember thinking how can the sun be dark when it rises that's not possible well it's not meant to be literal it's, it's just meant to be prophetic apocalyptic rhetoric talking about babylon you're going down the moon will not shine i will bring disaster on the world and their own iniquity on the wicked i will put an end to the pride of the arrogant and humiliate the insolence of tyrants so that could be what it is is Joel, Peter, quoting Joel, just referring to the fact that Jerusalem's going to go down. Doesn't that necessarily have to literally refer to dark sun and, and blood red moon? Although it could be because of the smoke and the fire that was going up from Jerusalem. You can take it literally if you want, but you've got to refer it to 87 if it's going to make any sense. And then Peter, quoting Joel in verse 21, says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, is that temporal salvation or spiritual salvation from hell? Well, I, I'm not sure. It could be both. The Christians in in Jerusalem, of course, were told when they see the abomination which causes desolation around the city, then get out of town. The Roman army under Cestus came up to the city, bottled everybody up. That was the abomination that causes desolation. Surrounded the city, and then they, for reasons historically unknown, Cestus withdrew. The Christians headed out of Jerusalem. They were let loose because the, the zealot Jews inside the city went and north of the city to try to chase that army. So they got out and they went to Pella, which is right north and east across the Jordan River, and they were all saved. According to Eusebius of Caesarea, the church historian, they were all saved. So that could be what it was. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or it could be because the Messiah is here. Everybody will be spiritually saved. All right, we now turn to verse 22 of Acts 2. Men of Israel, Peter continues in his 
in his Pentecostal sermon. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus the Nazarene was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Now that word pointed out is interesting. It's translated a lot of different ways in a lot of different translations. I've looked up about ten of them. Here's some of the different ways that Jesus was pointed out. He was accredited. He was approved. He was distinguished. He was commended. He was attested. He was born witness to. He was brought to your attention. Adam Clark says he was made celebrated. He was made famous. Jameson Fawcett and Brown say he was authenticated to you. He was proved to you. He was demonstrated to be from God to you. In other words, you stupid Jews, you should have known. You should have known. With all the wonders and signs that were done, you should have known, and instead you killed him. That's, pretty, that's, a, that's a rough preaching right there. And you can imagine how it made them feel when they heard Peter say, Jesus, the Nazarene, Nazareth, that nasty, low-down, scummy city in the north in Galilee where the people are contemptuous, ill-bred losers. And now you're saying this man is the Messiah and we killed him? Kind of ironic. And you notice that Peter calls Jesus a man. This Jesus the Nazarene was a man pointed out to you. He was not a ghost. He was not a god, merely a god. He, of course, he was God, but he was not a god alone. He was the God-man. He was a man, and he was God. This is a verse that clearly points out the humanity of Jesus, which if the early Christian docetists or the early docetist heretics had read, they would have realized that Jesus, yes, indeed, was a man. If you're born of the Virgin Mary, you're going to be a man. And notice that Peter finishes up this verse by saying, just as you yourselves know, this Jesus was a man pointed out to you by God, just as you yourself know. In other words, you knew about all these miracles. You knew. Now, did you know that Jesus was God? Well, maybe. They knew the miracles, at least. John Gill says they knew in their conscience that Jesus was the deity, Jesus was God, and that he was the Messiah. And they probably they probably did. What does Paul say in Romans 1? You know, you all knew God. To, got to be, you know, you all knew God, but you suppressed him in your unrighteousness. So whether they did know God or what, or they and they suppressed him, or whether they didn't know him at all, there's no excuse. They got signs and wonders pointed to Jesus they should have known. Acts 2.23, though he was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Now note Peter is not going to let the Jews think for one minute that they screwed God's plan up. Because the God's predetermined plan and God's foreknowledge, it was going to happen. Jesus was going to get nailed up on that cross. But you notice, that's, that's God's predestination. But you notice that human responsibility and liability is not precluded by God's predestination because Peter says you Jews used lawless people that would be the Romans you used the Romans to nail him up on a cross and kill him in other words you're responsible for God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge so don't get off of it by saying well you know God determined that it was going to happen I'm not responsible that's utter nonsense lawless people the Romans are called in this verse in the Holman Christian Study Bible translation the NIV said says wicked men the NIV margin says, or of those not having the law, which would be Gentiles, not quite as strong to call the Romans Gentiles, those without the law. I think lawless people are wicked men is a lot better. Now notice how Peter, in making this charge, is not afraid to charge his potential converts with an incredibly heinous sin. He was trying to convert these guys, remember? But he didn't mind telling them, hey, you guys sinned big time. And the obvious application is once when we're witnessing the people to try to win them to Jesus, quit trying to be sinner-friendly or seeker-friendly or whatever the heck they call it. Try to give them a basketball court and some psychological counseling and a place to cut their hair when they go to church. And to quit trying all that nonsense. 
just point out to them that they are lousy, dirty, rotten, filthy sinners, and Jesus loves them anyway and will forgive them for that sin if they will just repent. The simple gospel, instead of all this modern American churchianity, seeker-friendly horse manure, I mean, was the Apostle Peter here being seeker-friendly? He accused them of killing the Son of God. Notice also that Peter is not afraid to use predestination in his evangelistic preaching. I mean, here in the South, I'm surrounded by Arminians. More than half the Southern Baptists, all of the Methodists, all of the Pentecostal holiness, all of the Charismatics, to the extent that they even think a bit about theology. Arminians, Arminians, free will, free will, free will, free will. Peter wasn't like that. When he preached, he didn't say, it's time for you to make a decision. No, he said, you're sinners. You killed Jesus by the predetermined counsel of God. He didn't worry about turning somebody off about mentioning that word predestination. I tell you, you talk to the average Christian, they act like that word is a is a cuss word. Oh, don't talk to me about predestination. Except if you're a Presbyterian or Reformed Baptist, maybe. But the typical wussy-pussy evangelical Armenian Christian won't mention that word predestination. And that really is a shame. Now, this verse in verse 23, Acts 2, says that he, Jesus, was delivered up according to God's determined plan. Delivered up by who? It's the passive voice. It doesn't say who the subject is. could be God delivered Jesus up, or it could have been Judas delivered Jesus up, according to Adam Clark. It doesn't really matter. He was delivered up, according to God's plan. Let's finish up this section of this audio, Acts 2.24. God raised him up. God raised Jesus up. That's, that means by resurrection, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The NIV has the agony of death because Jesus' death was particularly cruel, as John Gill said. But that cruelty, that pain, that suffering that Jesus suffered, it was over. When he rose again from the dead, Jesus didn't feel any pain. He didn't feel any agony. He didn't feel the cruelty of death because he had conquered it. Now, notice that when it says that God ended the pains of death, it doesn't say whose pains of death were ended. I just assumed it was Jesus, and I believe it was Jesus' pains of death that were ended. But John Gill gives us a possibility that it was the believers in Jesus who had the pains of death ended. And actually, to be honest with you, it's both. When Jesus conquered death, we conquered death too because we're identified with him, we are in him, we are united with him in, his, in the likeness of his resurrection, as Paul says in Romans. And so that means we don't have to suffer the pains of death because Jesus didn't continue suffering the pains of death because they were ended. It was not possible for Jesus to be held. Not possible for Jesus to be held by the pains of death. No power in heaven or hell is going to kill God, and no power in heaven or hell was going to keep Jesus in that grave. That's good news, folks. That's why they call it the gospel, good news. That's what we as Christians believe. We're not going to die. Ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with this audio. Next audio, we will continue with Peter's Pentecostal sermon as we finish up chapter 2 of Acts. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.